Amen. Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to Emmanuel. Uh, I am really glad you're here today. And I'm always glad you're here. But today in particular, I'm glad because we're going to be talking about something that affects everything today. Something that affects everything. I'd like to start with a question. If you have your your bulletin today, if you could pull out the screen insert. Here's a question I'd like us to think about as we get started. And the question is this. It's an important question. When people aren't accountable to something beyond themselves, what are they capable of? If we were in a smaller setting, wouldn't that be an interesting question to, to talk about? Because people are capable of some pretty crazy stuff when there's no outside accountability. I was listening to the radio the other day, and uh, this guy was calling in to a talk show. And the guy calling in, he said, you know, the world would be such a better place if parents wouldn't teach their kids, would not teach their kids the Ten Commandments. You know, just let kids decide for themselves, discover, you know, what's right and wrong for themselves. And wow, um, if you're not familiar with the Ten Commandments, can I just share a couple things that are in there? One of them is honor your father and mother. One of them is take a full day of rest each week. One of them is don't lie. Another is don't steal. Another is don't murder. That's a good one. Um, There's also don't harbor jealousy in your heart. There's one about not being unfaithful to your spouse. Be faithful to them. And then there's another important one that says don't misrepresent your God or dishonor his name. Those are some of the things that are in the Ten Commandments if, if you're not familiar with them. And I would present to, to that person or to anybody that when you take away external accountability, when you take away a higher authority than yourself, you're, you're just subjecting yourself to all kinds of problems. Um, again, people are capable of some pretty crazy stuff when you take away any external accountability. And I want to offer Exhibit A. Maybe some of you guys recognize this face uh, from the news here. This is Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of North Korea. And if you were to be able to get people in North Korea, most of them, and you were able to get them in a safe place, I would present to you that they would say he is not leading the country in a good direction. But what would happen if you said something like that in his country? What would happen if you defied the supreme leader? You'd be in trouble, right? It's one of those situations where literally you defy, you can die kind of a deal. Well, I want to juxtapose the supreme leader of North Korea with another supreme leader. This dates way back. If you don't know, recognize this guy's face, I wouldn't have been able to recognize him in a lineup either. This is Pope Julius II. And I put his title up there. This is the title that he had in Latin. It was a title that was taken from the Caesars. This guy was a pope at the time of Martin Luther, someone we're going to talk about here in just a little bit, a German monk, uh, Martin Luther. When he visited Rome, when Martin Luther visited Rome, this guy was the Pope. And that title that you see up there on the screens that was taken from the Caesars, it translates into English as Supreme Priest. Supreme Priest. So this man was given the the title of Supreme Priest uh, in what was then the one church of Jesus Christ that was centered in, in Rome. And may I present to you that if you even take someone who is positioned as a Supreme Priest... And as was the case here, and he doesn't report to a higher authority other than himself. When he gets to literally say in that situation, I get to speak for God. That a person, even if they have good intentions, they're in that spot, no higher accountability. I would say they're going to drift more towards dictator than they are towards Jesus of Nazareth. When you put people in that situation. 
everyone needs to be accountable to a higher authority than yourself. We just need that. And when the supreme priest Julius died, he was replaced by Pope Leo X. And Leo inherited a huge debt, a huge debt that the supreme priest before him had left behind. As a side note, if you're the supreme priest and you're supposed to represent Jesus, is it more Christ-like to leave a debt or to pay a debt? Just, just a thought. All right, well, let's get back to Leo. Leo, he wanted to make Rome the artistic center of the Western world. And so he had all this debt, but he doubled down on the expenses. He doubled down um, in part paying for artists like Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, and these others to make things even more beautiful than they already were. So he's already got debt. He's hiring all these folks. to. He's got to figure out how do you pay for this? How do you pay for this? And so he made a shady deal with a bishop named Albert. And Albert recruited a Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel to sell something that they referred to as indulgences. And maybe you've heard indulgences before. It's, it's a, the history of indulgences is a long and complicated history. It meant different things at different times. But in this time and in this place, in Wittenberg, Germany area, uh, in the fifth, early 1500s, here's what it meant. When you would sell these indulgences, what you were doing was you were starting with the idea that people could sin a lot, that you could accumulate a whole lot of sins. But just as you could accumulate a whole lot of sins, if you were a really good person, you could accumulate a whole lot of good graces. And so you get to heaven and you do the balance sheet. And there were some people, they got to the balance sheet and they had a lot more graces than they needed to get in. So those got put into a a treasure chest. This is what they were teaching. And guess who had the keys to the treasure chest? Same guy trying to raise the money. Leo. And so what Leo did is he said, if you pay a certain amount of money, I can extend some of these graces to you. And so when your time comes... You can get out of purgatory a lot faster than others. Or maybe you can get some others out of purgatory as well. Where do you find that in the Bible? Nowhere. Nowhere. It was just something that these medieval leaders had made up. And what they did is they would not only make this up, but then they would back it up by taking pieces from the Bible out of context and using those verses to justify their behaviors. Well, in the supreme days of supreme priest Julius and Leo, churches were not allowing others to hold them accountable either. To say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this just doesn't seem right. People couldn't speak up and say that. To hold them accountable to a higher authority. Well, even as our pointing fingers extend in their direction, I want to make sure that we ask ourselves an important question. And there's a place to write this in your notes too. This is even more important because that's history. This is now with with us. What are we going to do about it? Who is setting the standard for your beliefs and for your behaviors? If someone were to to ask you, would you have an answer for that? Would you be able to say, yeah, here's the standard. Here's, Here's my absolute, here's my highest standard that I look to, my source that is beyond myself that others can hold me accountable to. And it's my hope that you find one. And, and a good one. Because if you're going to go there, if you're going to have a highest authority, you want to make sure it's a good one, right? You want to have a source that provides wisdom and insight and guidance that's helpful. You want to have a source that's grounded in reality. 
that's been vetted and tested and proven true. You want to have a source that would bring out the best in you, wouldn't you? Right? Wouldn't want a source that would do that? One that both calls you to a higher standard, but also can offer you grace when you don't hit that standard. So you can have some sort of peace. I would hope that you'd want a source that would help you become a better son or a better daughter, a better husband or wife, a better friend, a better neighbor, better boss or worker. Well, last Tuesday marked the 500th anniversary of the day when a low-ranking follower of Jesus named Martin Luther held the most powerful person in the Western world accountable to a higher standard. And about one year earlier, this was really fascinating to me. That was, 19, that was 1517. In 1516, about a year earlier, that's when Luther got his first copy, a Greek copy of the New Testament. And he was able to dig in the original language and go, this is what it said. And, and, and as he began to dig into what the scriptures actually said, he began to realize more and more and more the things that we're practicing are so far from that. This isn't what is being taught in this book. And when that Dominican friar that I referenced earlier set up his indulgence stand on the other side of the river from Wittenberg, and as Luther watched people that he loved and people that he had been teaching crossing the river to literally pay people for an invalid get-out-of-purgatory card, he realized, I can't just sit on the sidelines and watch this happen. And so what he did is he drafted up 95 statements. If you've ever heard the, the phrase 95 theses, that's what they're talking about here, these statements. And he wrote them up in Latin because he wanted to have a real debate, an intellectual debate. He wanted to be able to say, let's use the scriptures as our starting point, as our standard, and let's compare what we're doing to what that says. Let's hold ourselves accountable to a higher standard. And that standard was the word of God. He would argue, and I would, I would also affirm, that to become a Christian is to come freely and willingly under a higher authority. And that authority would be the word of God. Now, I would encourage you if, you, if you would, to look in your notes there. The word of God, I want to just unpack this really briefly, because the word of God is a phrase that includes the Bible, but means more than the Bible. And so, one of the things that I wrote down in your notes there is this. Authentic reform movements are almost always back to the word movements. If, if you're trying to reform the church, generally you're pointing to that as our source, the word of God. And sometimes... That movement involves realigning with what the scripture says because the scripture itself often refers to the written word of God as the word of God. But it also uses different, um, uh, points us to different directions as well. Another one of those directions is that the word of God can also refer to Jesus of Nazareth. He is referred to also in the scripture as the word of God, the word made flesh. And there have been different times in history where the reform movement is about, let's remember Jesus, right? Let's remember the example that he set and the things that he taught and the character that he had. And there's been several little movements that have helped us to re recapture that. So God speaks through the scriptures. God speaks through the word made flesh, the, the example and teaching of Jesus. And God also speaks to us in other ways as well. And this, the, the word even refers to this kind of word. And sometimes the, the, the back to the word movement is about realigning with direct revelation from God, the spoken word. 
The word of God also can come to us through prophets, through other people. He can speak through music. He can speak through stories. He speaks through dreams. And he can even whisper directly to our hearts and our minds. Um, an example of, of God speaking this direct revelation would be the, uh, the magi, the, the, the wise men in the Bible. What did God use to speak to them? A star. A star. He can speak through nature. So God can speak in these other ways as well. He can speak in a number of ways. And there's times where the church needs to remember that too. As long as we remember, as long as we remember that God's direct revelation will never go outside the guardrails of the written word. He'll never contradict that. Okay, well, at its core of these three things, there's a place right this in your notes, the Reformation was ultimately a back to the Bible movement. Back to the Bible movement. At its core, that's what the Reformation was about. Well, when Emmanuel was founded back in 2007, there was a whole lot of stuff we didn't know. Still a whole lot of stuff we don't know. But back then, we knew even less. But one of the things that has marked us from the beginning is we have done our absolute best to be devoted to the Word of God. We've done our absolute best to be courageous enough to look at it and, and to be honest and to do everything we do through that filter. And from the beginning, we've had a Bible um, most Sundays that's been up in front of our church. That's true here. It was true when we were in Chippewa. We've almost always had a Bible. We've had it open. And does anyone know what verse? We almost always have it open to. Psalm 119, 105. If you have your Bibles with you, let's open up there today. This is the, the one we try to, almost every week, try to have our Bible up in the front, open to this passage as a reminder of what we try to, to be about. Um, as you're turning there, I want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free. Um, on your way out, please take one. We have a stack of them there at the table. They're there for you. Please take it as a, as a gift. All right, Psalm 119, 105. I will try to speak this, not sing it to the tune that Amy Grant made popular back in the day. Your word, it says, is a lamp to my feet. It is a light to my path. That's how we see things here. And the further that Luther, back then, further that he dug into the Bible, the more he believed that this, this is the high, higher authority. This really is. This really is the word of God. And that everyone who identifies as Christian, this is, this is what we should hold one another accountable to. There's a quote um, to that end from a book that I recommended last week. I recommended a, a great book, Legacy of Luther. If you're going to read one book on the Reformation, I highly recommend this one. Here's what they say uh, about Luther. They go, in Luther, we find an example of one who ran everything. Every single prevailing notion of his day through the grid of God's word. The result was a revolution, a reformation. The result was a legacy that continues five centuries later. And to give you just a taste of how Luther felt in his own words, here's an excerpt from a Christmas sermon that he gave, 1522. Here's how he saw the word. He goes, oh God, that God should desire... And my interpretation and that of all teachers should disappear. And that each Christian should come straight to the scripture alone and to the pure word of God. You see from this babbling of mine, the immeasurable difference between the word of God and all human words. And how no man can adequately reach and explain in a single 
word of God. Or let's see, let me try that again. And how no man can adequately reach and explain a single word of God with all his words. Go to the Bible itself, dear Christians. Luther and the reformers, especially the early ones, they did everything they could. to say, we've got to get this into the hands of the people. We've got to get this to people in their language, in their hands. And God orchestrated history. So the timing of all this happened with the invention of the printing press. And the word of God began to spread all over Europe. As the word of God was translated into more and more languages and more and more people were able to read the word of God for themselves, the world was changed forever. I was able to see a very tangible example of this. I I referenced uh, last week that I had a chance to go and and see an exhibit that was uh, on display at the Minneapolis Institute of Art last year. And so they actually had these two chests that I want to juxtapose that I want to contrast (laughs) with one another. Now, it's going to be really hard to to make these out. They look like big black blobs here on the, the screen. But these are two heaven, heavily armored chests. One of them is closed, one of them is open. The closed one is a real indulgence chest from that time, from uh, Luther's day. And it's this heavily armored chest with all kinds of locks on it so that no one person could get in it. Again, it's an actual indulgence chest. And people were told this. They said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs which has a nice ring to it, but you won't find it anywhere in the Bible. And what that money was used for, that indulgence money, it got put on a cart, it was taken to Rome, and that money was used to pay for the indulgences, the indulgent lifestyle of church officials in Rome. So that's one of the chests, the indulgence chest. Well, the other chest is actually from Wittenberg. This was from the church where Luther taught. And this one appeared in that church about five years after Luther posted his 95 theses. They called it the community chest, which reminds me of Monopoly. I don't know if that's where it came from. Well, there's a huge difference between these two chests. Because you know where the money went from this chest? It went to things like funding schools. It went to helping the poor. It went to health care. They even were able to use this money to, to give loans to people that needed a loan to try to help improve their life. Where do you get a crazy idea like that? Where do you get a crazy idea that, that, that God's people could pool their resources and do a lot of good together with it? The book of Acts. That's where you get an idea like that. Well, I, I'm going to try something this hour that I tried the first hour. Um, my original plan, I was going to go a very different direction with this message until last night. Um, last night when I was kind of putting what I thought was going to be the final touches on, on things, Laura called up and said, how's it going? And I said, well, <laughs> I feel like I got to change, change the end, uh, where we're going to go with this. And it really had to do with these two chests and the contrast there. So I'll do the best I can to try to get this idea out. And hopefully this is going to be helpful. I encourage you to start by writing this down and then we'll try to unpack it. I believe that Christ invites us to leave indulgences behind so that we can experience community chest living. 
I'll say it again. I'll try to unpack it best I can. Christ invites us to leave indulgences behind so that we can experience community, chest, community. It is easy to mistake indulgent faith for the real thing. It's really easy. Even today. And the word of God can help us identify and help us hold each other accountable when we do. Not if we do, when we do. What the, one of the things the word can do is it can shine the light on religious practices. Because today, I'm sure if we went into all of the different things that people think they're supposed to do that are religious... I bet we could come up with things that may or not even, may be helpful. But we just think that if you're a good Christian, you do this thing, right? Like they were doing with the indulgence. People were trying to do right by their relatives and by themselves with these indulgences. I, there are religious practices that sometimes we can get into that aren't only not biblical, they're not even helpful. And instead, all they do is they put a burden on people. The word of God can help us identify those. Here's what else the word can do. The word can also shine light into a different kind of indulgence. And in my notes, I wrote down modern-day indulgence. That's, that's a mistake because these are the same indulgences that have been going on all along. Like the religious leaders of Luther's day, every generation will be tempted to indulge in behaviors that aren't God-honoring. Cravings that cause us to compromise on important commitments. The word of God can shine a light on that too. And that's so important that the word of God does that because there's also people who if something is good and enjoyable, they think, oh, that must not be from God. <laughs> we're going to, in two weeks, we're going to circle back to what Luther just helped the world rediscover. And that is that marriage and, and vocation and all of these things that are normal life, they are sacred also. And so the word of God can help us to say, this is a true blessing. Enjoy it. This is from God. It's a gift to you. And the word God can also help us go, now you've taken that too far. Or you've stepped outside of what's good for you. Or you've stepped outside of, of, of what you should and shouldn't be doing when you've crossed a line that you shouldn't cross. Well, this is just one of many ways that the word has proven helpful to so many people. I just wrapped up a great book by the former HR guy from Google great book called work rules outstanding book and it was pretty clear reading this book that everything this guy does is grounded in research everything this guy does is grounded in research well he he writes this in his book he says this he says we're not very good at predicting what makes us happy or how happy it will make us now remember this is coming from google they understand workplace satisfaction like almost nobody else on the planet and he's able to say hey as individuals we don't always know what makes us happy. We think we might know, but we don't always know. And I'll tell you, I'll be the first to testify to that. I'm getting close to 50 here. And every decade I look back, every decade I look back and I'm like, I thought I wanted that, but I didn't want that. And before that, I thought I wanted this. I didn't want that. And I'm sure it's going to happen as I continue on too. You know, most of us can look back and we thought we knew what would make us happy or we thought we knew what we wanted and we were not right about that there will always be temptations to indulge in things that we think we deserve or that we think we want or things that even this there are times we think something is right and we're wrong or we think something is wrong and we were wrong about that did i get that right i'm just gonna stick to my notes there's a reason i write things down when people when someone wrongs us 
we want to fire back. When money is tight or when we see something shiny, we tend to throttle back on our generosity. We make a decision that we think will make life better, but it makes life worse. And we're all tempted to justify things that we would advise others against. Can you even relate to these things I'm talking about now? In his book, the Google guy wrestled with this question of whether or not people are fundamentally good or fundamentally evil. And he landed on the side that we're fundamentally good. And he's partially right. At least according to the word. The word says, yes, there's so much good because each of us bears the image of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are God's workmanship. We're created in Christ to do good works. All of those things are true. And I can personally testify that the word is also true. And there's parts of us that just, where did that dark thing come from? Where did that thought come from? Where did that action come from? There seems to be something also within us that tempts us and deceives us into doing the very things, the very things that we don't want to do. Are people fundamentally good or fundamentally evil? I'd say we're complicated. That's what I'd say. And I've come to believe there's a God who gets that and wants to help us move beyond indulging in empty religion or indulging in destructive cravings. I've come to believe that there's a God who invites us to experience that community chest idea, that thing that was really what God intends in every area of our life, to move from empty religious rituals to the authentic pursuit of truth, to move from greed to generosity, to move from image management to authenticity, to move from earning a salary to honoring God in our vocations, to move from hookups to faithfulness and real intimacy, to move from chasing after what we think we want to experiencing the deep satisfaction that comes with doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. And in doing so, discovering the abundant life that Jesus cast a vision of. The first people to convert to Christianity, they converted because they heard good news. They heard good news. That there was a God who loved us so much that he paid the price for our indulgences. And that same God, he wants to guide us. He wants to guide us through his word. One of my favorite Bible verses is this one. I love what it says. Deuteronomy 32, 47 says, These instructions are not empty words. They're your what? They're your life. They're your life. And the reformers didn't discover this. They rediscovered this. They rediscovered this. And as they rediscovered this, they rediscovered there is a power in the word of God that isn't in other words, other written words, other spoken words. Martin Luther said this about the word. He said, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, their own micro label there, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. I did nothing. The word did everything. This is why so many Christians do what they call pray the scripture. 
They'll take something directly out of the Bible and they'll pray that into a specific situation. It's also why Christians, when they're authentically trying to follow God, they don't want to just get a thought and assume that that's God's will. They want to try to filter that and try to test that and try to discern it because they don't want to just follow an impulse. They really want to follow the leading of God. The reformers rediscovered The reformers rediscovered that the word even had power over the demonic realm. One of the fascinating things, if you you read that book, I encourage you, or or just do history, as you start to see in the Middle Ages, there was a lot of fear about spirits and the demonic world and death. And a lot of people would try to appease evil spirits. The reformers, they said, you don't got to appease them. We have authority over them with the word. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, look at that hymn that we sang last week, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and look at how Luther, as he wrote that, look at how he directly linked the word to overcoming spiritual oppression. Again, this wasn't a discovery, it was a rediscovery. Many centuries earlier, people were discovering similar things. These are the words of a prophet named Isaiah that can be dated more than 2,000 years before the Reformation. This is what it says in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven in Minnesota at the same time, sometimes, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my word be that goes out from my mouth. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And we see as we read the word from the beginning, Genesis, God's powerful word speaks things into existence. At the end of the Bible, the word of God returns for his bride, the church. The word is presented as an incomparable force for good and for truth, for good and for truth. There's a place to write this in your notes. Our world is still filled with supreme priests who are misguided and manipulative. They're still there today. And I'm not referring necessarily even to religious leaders, just in general. There are people who establish themselves as these mediators between God and us at different levels. And they claim to speak on his behalf. And some of them are just misled. They're not intending to mislead people. They're just misguided. There's others who are manipulative. And they're doing it with intentionality. And as I was preparing this series, I couldn't think about how tragic it is that so many of us are allowing ourselves to be deceived when we don't have to. Back in the day, in Luther's day, one of the reasons why this reform was so needed is the people... Most people, they didn't have access to this higher authority. The Bibles were in Latin and they didn't have any. And so they, all they could do when, when a priest would say something is go, oh, it sounds right, it doesn't sound right, I, what, do I, what do I do with that? Today, we have access to the word that, that nobody in history has had access to, especially in English. We have all these translations. And one of the things that that's so great about is you can compare and contrast them. Because nobody's infallible, right? And so you can look and go, where is their agreement? Where, is their, where, is, where are they different? You can take all this great research that's out there again. You can say, where do they align? Where do they disagree? 
You can say, oh, that I never saw things this way before. And we have freedom to discuss our faith with others. So we are able to test things like never before when someone says something, quote, on behalf of God. Well, I just want to share one inside baseball quote with you. And the reason I'm doing this is because this one nails a very real and present danger that most people don't recognize. Here's the quote. If the enlightenment shifted the ultimate authority in religion from the church to the mind of the individual, pietism and romanticism located the ultimate authority in the experience of the individual. Today's Christian influencers are validated by the crowd's response. Let me read that one again. That is so true. Today's Christian influencers are validated by the crowd's response. All this works so well in this culture because it helped create it. Point they're making is this, and this is so relevant in our culture. The Reformation is not the only movement that has shaped us and is continuing to shape us, to shape the way we think in the West. We all have been and continue to be influenced by the Enlightenment and pietism, romanticism, and modernity in general. And it has worked so well, in a good way, that I don't personally know anybody who would say that the Pope is accountable to no higher authority. I don't know anybody that thinks that. The Pope doesn't think that anymore, right? But here's the problem. Instead of continuing that swing towards, okay, as a Christian believer, having that swing go, okay, now we're going to vest that higher authority in the word of God. Most people in our culture just invest it in somebody else. Usually themselves. They, they become the authority over scripture because they say, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this, I'm going to leave that out, oh, that. And they, and they, they become the highest authority. Or... They pick one of these influencers that they talked about here that are validated by the crowd's response. Somebody who's really persuasive, someone who has a big following. Look how many people believe them. So they can't be wrong, right? A decreasing number of people in our culture personally engage the word. Personally engage the word, but rely instead of their own intuitions or what others say. And if you do that, you can be easily misled easily misled. A couple years ago, there was a, a social issue that was really big in the state of Minnesota. And as a church, we, 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 we don't duck things. We don't intentionally go trying to dive into controversy, but we intentionally don't want to duck things. And there was a lot of debate around this issue um, about what the Bible did and didn't say. And so what we did as a church is we, we put the series on the calendar. And before that series came up, I, I got two different books. And I gave both books to um, our, our senior staff and to our elders. And one of the books was written by a Christian, professing Christian author, and they took one side. And another was written by a professing Christian author, and they were on the other side. And the reason we did that is because I wanted to show how you can read one thing or hear one thing, and it can sound right. Because they were, you know, person A, it was all Bible this, Bible that. Person B, it was all Bible this, Bible that. <laughs> let there be light, God said, and, and there was. But then what we had to do is we had to go to those actual texts and look at them in context. 
And there are some things, like baptism, I'd argue, where you can go to the Word and the Bible isn't definitive on what age and how much water and those kind of things. Then there's other issues where the Bible is definitive. And unless you are fact-checking yourself, personally engaging the Word, you can be easily, easily misled on things. Well, from the beginning, we've done our best as a church to align our beliefs and our practices with the Word of God, regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost. We've definitely lost members over the, over the years because of trying to be true to the Scriptures. We're going to fall short in our attempt on this, but we're going to do our best to follow the lead of brave men and brave women who've gone before us. And many of you know the story of what happened when Luther <laughs> invited that debate about indulgences the debate never happened. Here's what happened. What did happen is that Luther was summoned to a town called Worms. And he thought what was going to happen there was a debate. He thought it was going to be the debate. Finally, we're going to go to the Word. We're going to talk this over and all this kind of stuff. There was no debate. He walked into this imperial committee. And in front of Luther, they had a table. And on the table, they had a whole bunch of his writings. And they said, we got two questions for you. Question number one, are these your writings? Question number two, do you disavow all of them? Luther wasn't expecting that. He said, can I have a moment? And he, they let him have the night and he prayed. And he came back the next day, knowing that this could cost him his life. And he said these words, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Luther said, I can't pretend. I can't pretend that what you're saying about indulgences is true. I can't. I can't pretend. I cannot live a lie. I cannot just stand here as a person that represents Jesus and say that what you're saying is true. Your teaching and actions contradict the scriptures. Your teachings and actions contradict the example of Jesus. Your teaching and actions go against everything that I know to be true. And Luther, like his savior before him, couldn't deny the truth, even if it was going to cost him his life. And if you don't know the story, I'd encourage you to dig in because it is like a movie. And in fact, I've heard there's movies made on it. Because there was a faked kidnapping and everything to, to save him. It was incredible. In the case of Jesus, things played out differently. And in those moments when it looks like and it seems like God is asking too much, remember who it is that's asking. The one who laid down his life willingly for us. The one who paid the ultimate price for our indulgences. If God is asking us to do something hard, it's for a reason. Well, one of my favorite quotes from the Legacy of Luther book is this one, and I'll close with this, and we'll transition into a sacrament called communion. We must use God's ways to come to him. We can make up a lot of stuff, and we can say, this is what I need to do or not do to come to God. 
We must use God's ways to come to him. And that's one of the things we're going to encourage us to do right now tonight or this morning. I want to encourage uh, Jason and the worship team to, to come on up.